opening up the word of God, reading to you what it says, and telling you, explaining to you what that said, um, expository teaching. I am less comfortable with more topical or historical teaching because that's not, not been my strength. And I'll be honest with you, this, this, um, this kind of takes me back to my eighth grade social studies class with Ms. Keach and my failed uh, book, re- book report. <laughs> Khrushchev, Gorbachev, what's the difference, honestly? What's the big deal? I, I did make it through high school. In case you're wondering, I made it. I survived. Um, but later in my life, I was introduced to this guy named Abraham Kuyper. And his name will, will maybe show up here at some point. It's spelled K-U-Y, K-U-Y-P-E-R. And Abraham Kuyper uh, came on my radar around 2013. Um, I first read of him in another author's book, a guy named Hugh Welchel. He wrote a book called How Then Should We Work? And... Uh, and introduced me to ideas, ideas that rightly drove me to know how to study the Word of God and understand the gospel itself more clearly. And this is a fact where I first became convinced that there are four necessary elements of the gospel for the Christian. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. A truncated gospel tells me that I need a Savior because I'm a sinner, and I, I get that. But I have found that myself and many others that I've interacted with, there, there's this, this crucial gap that's left. There's a question that I'm stuck with. And that, by the way, that question finds its answer in Genesis, in creation. By whose standard am I a sinner, and, and who is God to tell me anything? See, to understand, if we, ta- if we start with fall and redemption, hey, you're a sinner in need of a savior. Okay, all right, does that mean I'm a bad person? And and we have this problem that we run into, right? Who is God? And and it's interesting, as we went through the exercise this this past uh, winter with men of Calvary, we studied through the book of Genesis, the number of of epiphanies I saw in men who were coming up to me and saying, oh my goodness, I, I just never put the scriptures together in this way before. It reinforces to me that we need all of Scripture for all of life. We really do need to understand the Scriptures. And when I went to Genesis, I I discovered something else that totally transformed my life. God made Adam to work. Before the fall, God made Adam to work. In other words, work is not inherently sinful. And if you listen to our broader culture today, there's a deep vibe that says, yeah, work is just, wow, it's inherently sinful. If, if I could, if I could just retire, if I could just move to a mountainside somewhere in the Smokies, if I could just be done with work, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm tempted to believe that way. Can I call it what it is? It's sin. It's rebellion against God's design. But, but there's something in that. Sin impacts every aspect of work. And I'll be honest with you, I think it would be easier for me to spend a day in the workplace with sinful people if I could just get rid of my own sin, if I could just see through the lens clearly and be able to discern things purely without my preconceived motives, without my sinful motives. And so all of these things, I'm turned on to these people who were thinking through this. And it wasn't just Abraham Kuyper. It was was people like Dorothy Sayers, uh, definitely Francis Schaeffer. The ideas that they had 
changed one fundamental thing for me is it, it, it was that, uh, it, we've heard it summarized in the phrase today, all of Christ for all of life. In other words, there is no aspect of my life that escapes the demand for God to receive the glory. Nothing. So his quote is similar to that. It's, it's most, it was most impactful to me then and has now become very popular again, and it's an often quoted phrase. And, and listen to this, and the way that he says it's much more articulate than me, but listen to this. And let it sink in. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Think about that. Think about what that means. Is it biblical? Is it true? It's always the question we want to start with, right? That's why I'm so uncomfortable talking in this context, because I always, when I'm encountering something that's, that's controversial, that's new, that's difficult, I always want to see it here. I want to see it in the scriptures. I want to see it presented in that way. And in that context, that author, Hugh Welch, will remember the book, um, How Then Shall We Work? In that context, he's emphasizing Kuiper's intent that everything exists for the glory of God and that his possession of the earth is a result of his sovereign role as the creator. It is his. I am his. That is part of the gospel. If not, it all falls apart. We struggle with to find meaning. We struggle to find purpose. And that author proceeded to describe something that I've found to be very helpful as well, and that is he described this sacred-secular divide in our culture. Um, you can go back in time and see this. Some of you who are my age or perhaps older, um, you've seen the evidence of that um, through the moral majority. Uh, through presidents past. This goes all the way back to, you know, the late 60s, the 90s. This came to the forefront when we talked about, you know, the way that we, we create these little pigeonholes in life. I connect this way in this context. And when I go to church, I connect this way. And, and those can be distinctly different. There's a divide between them because that's secular. This is sacred. You familiar with that idea? Think about it. And, 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 and pick up your sledgehammer for me, if you would. Let's break that wall down. Uh, How did that go, Mr. Gorbachev? Dare down that wall, right? Bring that wall down so that we don't act in that way. And that concept was clearly demonstrated in this idea that while I go to work to earn money to support my family and contribute to God's work, the higher calling is to be engaged in ministry. There's a lot wrapped up in that. There's a lot wrapped up in that because there, there, there's a calling, there is greater honor, there are greater challenges. There are all of those things that come with various different types of ministry. But can I assure you that if you are, <clears throat> excuse me, if you are in Christ, you are in ministry. Does that make sense? Is that a challenge? Mom, dad, son, daughter, older sibling. How about that? You're ministering. You're in ministry. Those ideas, of course, of the sacred-secular divide are contrary to Scripture because Scripture is very clear that all things exist to the glory of God. Westminster Greater Catechism says it this way. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, John Piper's bent on that uh, by enjoying him forever. I do appreciate it. But there's no doubt that this can get messy because uh, we sort out what to believe about all these events leading up to eternity and glory, where I am now, here's where I am now, and you have this marker, and then there's all of eternity moving forward. 
But, but for now, let's just stay in this time and go back a few years. Um, some of you have known me for a while. You'll know that I began pursuing vocational ministry about 13 years ago. I think, I think it was 13 years ago. We were just talking about this. And along that journey, um, through forced immersion in the Word of God, I faced an identity crisis. Um, I knew, I found, I'll say I discovered, that I was not gifted in a way that would serve me as an effective missionary. It wasn't just a matter of, hey, you got to learn some new things. I just wasn't good at it. And I thought, well, you know, just keep pushing the rock uphill. Keep at it. We're going we're gonna to get this. We're going to overcome this. I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to study. I'm going I'm I'm to take my, my little puddle of, of biblical knowledge, and I'm going to turn it into a well that I have something to share. But in that process, and those are good things. That was a good thing. That's necessary for every aspect of life anyway. Go to the scriptures. But I just wasn't gifted at that. And, and, and the mistaken deduction in that moment is, wow, I'm a failure. I'm really a failure. On some level, that has some, some degree of truth to it, but it was so impactful for me, honestly, when I learned what it is to find my identity in Christ. Um, that, uh, that, that understanding transformed how I acted out my life because I learned not to, to separate the work that I do all week long from the glory of God. I learned instead to work to the glory of God and to serve God in my work as I served my employer. Um, and by the way, the result, I was able to back away from that pursuit and watch an eminently more gifted man step into that role. Um, and I was able to move into the work that God equipped me to do for his glory. I, I don't see Mike here. Is Mike Miosi here? Brother. What an opportunity when you realize, uh, you, you see your own self and you have the, these questions, right? What is God doing here? And you see someone who is equipped and they step in and you realize, oh, that's what God's doing. He has someone else for that. And, and you can actually, instead of being uh, embarrassed, ashamed, um, jealous, fearful, you can put wind behind the sails of that person, that organization, because I believe, by the way, it was, it was Spread of Grace Ministries is where I was involved. Uh, Mike is, is the one who stepped into that role uh, that I was pursuing. And, and in that moment, I realized, oh, I believe in the mission. I, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, right? I believe in the mission of Spread of Grace, but I'm not the best one to do it. But these other people are. So praise God. And, and I say all of that because Abraham Kuyper is really the one who caused me to think through these things. And, and it's not as though today we adopt these labels, right? Calvinist, uh, Kuyperian, Kleinsian, whatever it is you want to throw on. And, and I'm okay with using them as adjectives to describe something. P please don't use those labels for people. It's just not helpful because they mean different things to different people. For example, John Calvin. Did he live perfectly? Was he the God man? No. So be careful. Just be careful in your use of words. That's all. As we go through this, there are a lot of people who are adopting this Kyperian mindset. I want to live in a Kyperian way. Okay. It, that adjective means something. It describes something. As long as we use it carefully and describe what we mean, I think it's okay. And these ideas that I'm talking about, they're not new. They, they really matured through the Reformed Fathers throughout the 20th century. Uh, and and they, were, they were carried out through, frankly, raging debates about the tenets of the Reformed faith that continue even today. I'm going to attempt to cover a few of these as we go along, but I really don't want to just dig into controversy. I want to point to what God's word says, what we know we can believe, and what, what's true. And so I'm going to seek to be specific about that and also very specific if I'm injecting my opinion. 
Um, so let's talk about who Abraham Kuyper is, was. Uh, here's a summary overview of the man. Abraham Kuyper was born in 1837 in the Netherlands. Uh, he died in 1920 in The Hague. Uh, so just think about that time, that era, um, that, that post-modern era. He was a Dutch theologian. He was a statesman. He was a journalist. Uh, he read, uh, led the anti-revolutionary party and Orthodox Calvinist group to a position of political power, and then ultimately served as prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. Um, he did actually serve as a pastor uh, in Amsterdam from 1863 to 1874. Uh, he adopted the Orthodox Calvinist view. Um, he was known for that. He also uh, published a lot of that through a newspaper he founded in 1872. Uh, he was elected to the National Assembly in 1874. So you can see that ascension, pastor, newspaper man, then becoming uh, a politician. Uh, he became a, a leader of that political party and then expanded it, ultimately as the first properly organized Dutch political party, a uh, far more practical politician. Uh, he, he really had more of a, a middle-class following. But his key was combining orthodox religious views with, hold on, progressive social programs. Now, we, we end up at a sticky wicket, right? Because a lot of us here, you know, we, we, we have our tribes today and everybody lines up in the tribes. And I just want to encourage you with a couple of things. Um, number one, um, God is not of a political party. And number two, um, if you consider yourself of anything, a conservative or a liberal, and you've separated from Christ and the scriptures, you're, you're, you're in a problem area. Uh, it's very, very simple. You cannot be a conservative separate from Christ. You cannot be a liberal separate from Christ. Um, I, I have the uh, kind of a front row seat where I work with, with folks from both parties in my daily work, and, and it is so interesting to me. You think, you may think, when you're distanced from it, oh, it's so clear, bad, good. <sighs> Not so much. Because human, human, man, woman. We all struggle with this sin nature, and so we need to be very thoughtful about that. Ultimately, with, it, with the end in mind, uh, his, his socialist ideals, um, well, we know where Amsterdam is today, right? What's Amsterdam known for? Uh, the, same, the same college that he founded has, has taken a whole liberal bent. And so there are all of these things that we must recognize. We, we evaluate the outcomes, and we want to make sure that we understand that we need protections to avoid those kinds of outcomes. Any of our ideas, when pursued to their ultimate, we have to understand what the impact is. Nonetheless, as we talk about what he's accomplished, um, he actually had this reputation for also pulling together kind of uh, um, uh, gr different groups of religious people, including Catholics and various others, to try to accomplish something, and he would pull them together. And, and that's yet another area of criticism in his life, because he actually wanted to introduce a coalition of state subsidies for parochial schools, and that was one of his objectives. Um, We'll talk about the, kind of the, the, the theology behind that, why he was pursuing that. Uh, but he had a coalition in 1897 of three basic church groups, the Catholic, uh, the anti-revolutionary Calvinists, and the Christian historical parties, pulled them together to carry out some of these initiatives back in the time. As we think about more deeply the accomplishments during his life, uh, I think there, there's another book that I had read uh, and the book was called Abraham Kuyper, Modern Calvinist, Christian Democrat, written by James D. Brad. And there's an excerpt from that that I think is helpful in summarizing some of these things. And I'll just review some of the things that we just talked about. 
because there are the, these, these interwoven questions that leave us uh, perhaps pursuing a deeper understanding of some significant issues. I'd say his career is as full of noteworthy achievement as any single individual in modern Western history. Um, from his birth to his death, his life covered a broad range of enterprises. Um, I already talked about being a, a pastor as a minister of the Dutch Reform uh, Church, a professor of theology, editor of a, a daily newspaper, founder of a, a political party, advocate for the funding, uh, public funding of religious schools, and founder of a university, uh, member of Dutch Parliament, and prime minister. Uh, obviously a proliferate author as well. You'll see, uh, you won't see actually, but there are some quotes that he shared that he's published in many of his works that I find really, really helpful. Um, somehow he also managed to fit time for several long collapses from nervous exhaustion that seemed only to bring him back with larger ambitions for larger agendas. I, I really appreciate that phrase. Just think about what that means. He went from collapsing from nervous exhaustion to larger ambitions for bigger agendas. I really appreciate that. If his ideas were uninteresting, his achievements alone would make him worthy of attention. But since his, his well-articulated beliefs propelled his activities, it really leads us to ask the question, you know, who is Kuiper, and try to find an answer to that. And I think that's what I particularly appreciate. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't have that mothball theology kind of a mindset. What I mean by mothball theology is, is that... Uh, you have the library full of books and you can espouse your ideals and you walk around as the frozen chosen maybe who, who just, you express no care, no love. You don't have an interest in things other than debating to prove that you're right. Um, you actually take that and you give momentum to it and it affects the way that you live. It affects the way that you live with your wife. It affects the way that you live with your kids. It affects the way that you live with your employer. I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. And I think it's, my opinion. It's extraordinarily easy to be critical of people who, who put themselves out in the forefront. Anybody who stands in a leadership position, anybody who puts themselves on the public stage, it's pretty easy to criticize them because their acts are public. You can see them. Um, what I find admirable is someone who is willing to risk standing on the front lines. Uh, think about it this way. What more difficult place would there be for you today as a Christian to serve than in a public university, than a public school, in some sort of business that interacts in the political forefront. Much less, back it up a little bit, just think about your daily work. An attorney, you have to interpret the law, you have to do all of these things, but always mindful of what you believe. In other words, um, I have so much admiration for someone who really wants to connect together their theology with the way that they act in daily life. And Kuiper held a positive conception of government, um, not as an all-purpose solution to every problem, which I think is a, a key distinction as we think about what we would think by, of the term socialist today, but as a God-given sphere ordained to ad adjudicate disputes among the spheres and defend the weak against the strong and to maintain the state's natural duties for developing infrastructure and promoting the general welfare. Above all, he held that God had gifted all humanity with the ability to contribute meaningfully to the common good using the term common grace, and that regeneration in Christ created a community, a mind, a predisposition, a sensitivity utterly opposed to everything of the world. Now, I threw a phrase out there that's become controversial. Common grace. Um, 
I would say here, let me, let me read this quote from Kuiper and see if, see if this helps us to understand. Listen as I read. For if grace exclusively concerned atonement for sin and salvation of souls, one could view grace as something located and operating outside of nature. But if it is true that Christ our Savior has not only done with our soul, but also with our body, then of course everything is different. We see immediately that grace is inseparably connected with nature, that grace and nature belong together. Let's break it down, kind of summarize, see what, what, what does he actually mean by that? Because those words might not resonate. They might just sound like word salad to us. They're not. They're substantive. Um, and by the way, this, since this is one of the primary criticisms of Kuiper, and today is regaining momentum as an argument in theological discussion or debate, I'll attempt, to, I'll attempt to summarize this in a way that's true to Kuiper's original intent. Number one, in addition to the saving grace of God, and, and just hold those distinctions, saving grace, common grace, that's the distinction that he's making, okay? In addition to the saving grace of God, shown only to those who are elected to eternal life, there is also a certain favor or grace of God shown to his creatures in general. Um, you don't have the benefit of seeing the scripture listings, but if you're interested, I'll be happy to share those with you in a follow-up conversation, because there are many. Manifold scripture passages support this, this concept very clearly. But we're setting up this dynamic. We're comparing saving grace to common grace. Saving grace is distinctive. In other words, there are those who are chosen by God before the foundations of the world. And, and then all men, right? The sun rises, the rain falls on all men. The second point of common grace is that since the fall, human life and society remains possible because God, through his spirit, restrains the power of sin. I liken this to, to an understanding of the law, right understanding of the law. In, in other words, today we have, we have people who, who want to add to the law. They want to be the Pharisees. We call them the legalists. And then we have the others who say, ah, no, law. it's done. It's gone. Forget about it. They're called antinomians. The antinomian legalists have the same problem. They're dismissing what God has said. And God gave us the law, and, and God gave us the law to be a mirror. We look in the mirror to, to what? To see. To see ourselves rightly. It's a teacher. It instructs us in righteousness and it's also a restraint. The law restraint. When you see what God has said, don't do that. It should be a restraint. And that operates at a higher level in a different sphere in human life in society. And it has a connection to uh, the Spirit's power restraining the effects of sin. Third aspect of common grace. God, without renewing the heart, so influences human beings that though incapable of doing any saving good, they are able to do civil good, civic, civic good. If you think about this, um, in other words, you, you have uh, human influence to actually do things that would promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. We have these opportunities to, to do good outside of what we would consider salvation. And so when I say common grace, when Kuiper says common grace, that's a summary of what he means. Um, that's my rudimentary de definition. My opinion is the controversy today about the use of the word grace and the phrase common grace becomes a semantic argument. Um, it insists that we draw a distinction between providence and grace. So in other words, the way the argument goes is something like this. If, you can't use the term common grace because it's, it's an abuse of the word grace. And so if you say grace is common, then there is not, there's, there's nothing specific and unique about it. So um, that's the semantic argument of it. I would say, quite honestly, I, I believe that we can safely use the phrase common grace and be completely in line with what the scriptures teach us. 
the distinction I would make is that common grace must remain unique from saving grace. That's it. And I think if we use the words in that way, we can have a clear and acceptable understanding. But saving grace is available only to God's elect, those whom he chose. So that was the one controversy, the discussion of common grace. And and if you're you're, uh, a podcaster, you can pick up on some of that these days. Um, Conversations that matter, I think, is the most recent where I heard this this debate raging. Um, I didn't find it incredibly helpful, quite honestly, but uh, you may. I'd say the, the, the key for the next controversy for Kuiper, uh, you know, Mark Knoll from the, from the book I mentioned earlier has a quote that I think is helpful. The vigor of Kuiper's convictions along with his strenuous efforts at putting them into practice for religious, educational, and political purposes in the Netherlands and with the significant numbers around the world who have found his ideas inspiring make him a figure of world historical significance, and I would agree with that. The range of his influence is noteworthy, and it holds for all of time since his, since his adulthood. He insisted on harmonizing his work with theology in every sphere of being, from education to government leadership. Uh, listen to this quote that helps to describe that. Wherever man may stand, this is Kuiper, whatever he may do, to whatever he may apply his hand in agriculture, in commerce, and in industry, or his mind in the world of art and science, He is, in whatsoever it may be, constantly standing before the face of God, his God. He is employed in the service of his God. He has strictly to obey his God. And above all, he has to aim at the glory of his God. That one's t-shirt worthy, bumper sticker worthy, or Facebook meme worthy. It's good. Those words are good because they apply to us. They should help us. They should motivate us, whether we work at Chick-fil-A or, or the cable company, whatever it is that we do. Think about it this way. Above all, he has to aim at the glory of his God. It's not just enough to behave yourself on the job. It's not just enough to evangelize coworkers, especially while you're being paid to do another job. It's an entirely different thing to work to the glory of God. And I firmly believe that. It is complicated. It is messy. I I doubtfully, anybody has perfected this yet, but we should be striving for it because we are not yet perfected. We are purposed to perform good works to the glory of God. Think for a moment of the implications of this common phrase. We're the hands and feet of Christ. We are the means by which Christ is acting in this world. Christ is our head. He is our head. We are his hands and feet. Scripture is our guide, and we exist for the glory of God. Package those together. I think sometimes I struggle. Maybe we all do. We spend too much time rewinding our epic fails, like my eighth grade book report. And all we see is everyone else's highlight reels. And we say, oh, wow. You know, they, they're not honoring God, and they've, they've got it. They've got it going on. Everything's good. I think Romans chapter 6 addresses this. If you want to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, we'll just, we'll just look at a brief passage here because I think it's directly attributable to Kuiper's concept here. And I'll also borrow from the Heidelberg Catechism this question. Can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? 
I'll say it again. Can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? The response is this. No, but even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of such obedience, yet so that with earnest purpose they begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. We're all on the sanctification journey. We have a starting point, and our end point is glorification with Christ for all of eternity. The key here is to understand that none of us have achieved. None of us are there. But we are called to pursue together. That's different, isn't it? It's not individual. It's the church operating together, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, on and on and on. Scriptures are very clear. The church is the body of Christ together. The church assembled is the body of Christ together. Together is what makes it messy, doesn't it? Uh, just curious, how many of you here work with church members, whether not Calvary Bible Church members, but people that go to church and would claim Christ? <laughs> Hopefully you do, Matt. It kind of supports my assumption. Um, you know, so, so maybe that was maybe 40%, if, I, if my num- numbers are correct. Um, there, there's a concept that, that maybe I believed for a while, that, you know, I could just get away from these secular people and this secular work and go work with all the Christian people. All the conflict is gone. We're just going to get it right. How's that work, Joe? It's not that way. There's an important understanding that we should all have, and it should cause us to extend grace to one another. One of the most common objections raised by critics of um, this idea, justification by faith alone, is this. If we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, what place does that leave for good works? Even the Apostle Paul heard a similar objection from Christians in Rome. What do we say then? Or do we continue in sin so that grace may abound? So let's read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm reading New American Standard this morning, by the way. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried together with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We have indeed been saved. We have been declared righteous. We have been justified. So being declared righteous, being set apart, requires a fundamental premise. Our response to that is repentance. And repentance is what? It's a change of mind. It's a turning away and changing our mind, changing the way that we think about things. And key among those things is what we do with 90 to 95% of our time on this earth. In our homes, as parents, as children, as siblings, in the workplace, as workers. Paul's answer is pretty emphatic in this passage. In response to this charge, he says, by no means. His explanation is simple. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's talking about this, in other words, recognizing that Christians have been transformed to walk in newness of life. 
He does make the argument that sinners are justified by faith alone and not by works. And please don't misunderstand me in this, in this lesson. I'm not claiming that our works are transformative or in any way earning us favor with God. Not at all. But it is. It is the response of the believer who loves their Lord. All the passages that we could read, if we just went through with a different lens, if we looked at them and pulled out the passages about good works, Titus is an example of that, right? Look at the numbers, the number of uses of that term in the book of Titus. It is important that we recognize that those who believe, those who have had a change of mind, those who have repented, those who have received Christ and find their identity in Christ will act faithfully according to what he's instructed. So this all became quite a matter of controversy for Kuiper, um, and they all kind of argued through it at length. Ultimately, I think the catechism is very helpful and clarifies this for us. For the sake of time, I'm going to move forward. Um, because of, of Kuiper's insistence on God's model in all of life, uh, where we get the phrase, modern phrase, all, for all of Christ, for all of life, um, we should not suppose that he held to this view for, for the home and marriage as well. In other words, uh, listen, listen to this quote. Free love may try to dissolve and the concubine to desecrate the holiest tie as it pleases, but for the vast majority of our race, marriage remains the foundation of human society and the family retains its position as the primordial sphere in sociology. Um, what he's saying here, basically, he, he related these spheres. Each, he proposed that each sphere of life held its own autonomy as far as, as it honored the model of God given in his word. In other words, if you look at the word of God, you can see very clearly that there are these institutes. There's, there's the government, clearly instituted by God. Um, Joshua's teaching Romans chapter 13 this morning to, to the junior high class. Um, you, have, you have the sphere of, of uh, home, uh, right, where Christ is head, but, but obviously you have a, a role of male headship as well. Um, and so on and so forth. You see these spheres of autonomy. And so the next controversy for Kuiper, it's, it's resonating again in, in our culture, is the battle to be or not to be woke. Um, Kuiper was a Democrat who implemented socialist, socialist ideas in his day. He believed that the world was in danger of fracturing under the diffusive and secularizing pressure of modernity. And he was attempting to articulate a socially aware, gospel-centered Christian vision of political engagement. At the center of this attempt were his writings on charity and justice, specifically. Um, in my opinion, and let's make that distinctive, this is an area where we need to operate with biblical clarity in our postmodern age. Okay? Truth exists in Jesus Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's, and where do we find him? We find him in the scriptures. And so we open up the scriptures. If we want to know truth, examine the word of God. Um, and also be prepared that not only the world, but, but also some in the church would misuse scripture. Let's examine it in its historical and grammatical context to gain greater understanding. So with that, here, here's a question for you. And I, and I think this came out of my study through Kuiper's life. Um, let's open up Acts chapter 2. Some of you may already know where I'm going. But just bear with me as we make our path there. Let's read Acts chapter 2. I'll read verses 41, 42, and 44. 43 and 44. 
So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. Hmm, pause there. They had all things in common. Means they're, they're sharing everything. Oh, and 45 continues, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have a need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. This sounds like utopia, right? I mean, doesn't it? Everybody's together. Everybody's getting along. Everybody's sharing. I, I, do, I do agree. It has that kind of a, a vibe to it. But the question that I want to ask is, does this mean that the Bible condones socialism? Does Acts chapter 2 teach Marxist principles? Let's test it by scripture. Um, there are all kinds of arguments, and of course the woke church arguments have been carrying out today. I'm less interested in that and really what, what we can deduce from this passage. And in Acts chapter 2, I think we find the answers. Uh, the claim that Acts chapter 2, and even through uh, chapter 3, 4, and 5, teaches socialism or communism or Marxism. First of all, we have to look at what the pages say. Um, all those who believe were together and had all things in common. I picture this very much like our uh, Memorial Day camp out. Keep in mind, these people were not in their homes, right? They were all essentially camping here for this time, at a place for a time. And so if you think about what happens if, if you were to come here and go camping in the backfield for a period of time, what happens if you stay longer than you intended? Well, it gets a little bit harder, right? And if you have an excessive journey to get back home, well, that's really going to impact the way that you behave. And so put, put it in that context. Number one, the early believers didn't sell all their possessions because they didn't have all their possessions with them. Um, even though it may seem the phrases had all things in common or selling their property or all things were common property means that they sold everything, had a common pot. The context has to qualify that. They continued to live and meet throughout that time. And verses 43 for 47 um, are really not describing as the, uh, that they have sold all of their possessions, a once-for-all divestiture of all property, but these were periodic acts of charity as needs arose. Seeing even clearer in chapters 4 and chapter 5, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, wait a minute. Way back here in chapter 2, they sold everything, right? How did they have something to sell in chapter 4? You've got to think that through. They didn't sell all of their possessions. They were actually taking, when they didn't have the, the, the financial means to meet a need, they would actually sell possessions to meet that need. And so it did show generosity. I think I, somewhere in my margin here I've written, this is a quote from, directly from Bill Fay. And I, I've, I've got it in my column here. He said very clearly, this is not compulsion, this is volunteerism. And I think it, it, it harkens me back to, I think it was George W. Bush said, uh, you know, we should, we should have mandatory volunteer work for all high school seniors. <laughs> Somehow those words just don't fit in the same sentence, right? This, this isn't compulsion. This is voluntary. 
There are positive examples of this throughout, and then there's also the example of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge, kept part of the proceeds for himself. The problem with this was not that they had sold their possessions or that they needed to give all the, pro- all the proceeds of their land to the apostles, but they lied about it. That's the issue. So there's good reason to believe the early, uh, early believers didn't sell all that they had, but were generous. And as the occasion demonstrated, they sold part of their possessions and gave the proceeds to the apostles for distribution. But even if we grant for the sake of argument that all believers sold all their possessions and redistributed them, does that prove this idea that socialism or communism are biblical? No. Because it's entirely different. There would have to be state-coerced taking of property and forced redistribution of wealth. And the state is not the one here selling or giving. So... I think that's actually pretty important. Uh, so I'll just emphasize again, the sharing was totally voluntary. Um, and if you, I, I'm not going to go deep into the, the Marxist ideals, but ultimately um, the Marxist ideals would say you can own nothing. Um, that's, that's not the way it works. They view ownership of private property itself as oppressive. Um, thirdly, this was not a permanent practice. Um, this was a temporary measure for a time. And I think that you see in this a greater story where these folks were together, they were facing a specific need, and the generous acts of volunteerism unified this group together. It gave them opportunity to serve one another more effectively. And I will say throughout Scripture, wherever you find voluntary service to the glory of God through his people, you find joy even in the midst of oppression. I think that's the principle we really do want to take away from this, even though they're giving up their possessions. So as we think about these controversies and and all the different ideas, um, I think you also have to remember that you can't get uh, ought out of is, as the way the phrase goes. You can't get an imperative out of the indicative. You have to show that the historical precedence precedent in Acts 2 through 5 is a mandatory prescription for all later Christians. And I don't think, no matter how hard you try, you will ever do that in this case. Um, The fact that some Christians shared all things with qualifications does not constitute a command that all Christians should follow that example, nor should they submit and give all their property up to government for redistribution. So there's that. So end of my opinion section. Let's actually talk about how to wrap this up and what do we do with the life of a guy like Abraham Kuyper. Um, Wise teachers have always maintained that it's not good to base an important doctrine on a single passage of Scripture. But if you do, surely in that passage, the doctrine ought to be clearly taught. And so in the passage we just looked at, we clearly see that socialism is not taught. Uh, It's impossible without uh, trying to to make it dance in a way that it's not intended to, to show that it does. And I, I hope that there's enough here in this brief discussion to pique your interest in not only these concepts of common grace, of biblical uh, forms of government, of, of acting in the world faithfully as a believer. I hope that there's enough to pique your interest there and also in the life of a guy like Abraham Kuyper. I think he would benefit, I really do, in my opinion, from a deeper read on folks like Abraham Kuyper, Dorothy Sayers, Francis Schaeffer, though imperfect, quite imperfect, these people all have given opportunity for me 
to um, learn how to serve God more effectively in his world. There's enough for me here to also see that this way of thinking is in direct opposition to our cultural malaise. And this, I think, is the application that, that, I, would, that I would seek for all of us today. As we talk and interact in the workplace, in the public sphere, you find overwhelmingly that there, there's a feeling of no purpose. There's this, this anxiety, this receding into oneself, isolation. Um, we can talk about all the different events of the past four years that have created this dynamic, that have caused people to recede into their own homes, recede into themselves, to take less effort in industry. Um, with that, you see the corresponding increase in illicit drug use, in promiscuity, in, in all of those things, in, in what I would call the vices, um, those evils that perpetuate themselves for people making money in that way, hoarding wealth upon wealth upon wealth because of those vices, um, whether it's gambling or pornography or whatever, fill in the blank. Look around. That's our world. There is an answer. The answer is Christ. And we cannot, rem- we cannot forget to remind folks why we are not discouraged and anxious. Why we have hope. Be prepared to give an explanation for your hope. Can you do that? I think that's a, that's a genuine question. That's a genuine takeaway question from this. If someone were to ask you, why do this? Why go to work? Why do any of it? There's no purpose. Why would you do this? What's your answer? And is your answer connected together with the gospel? I think that's the question. Purpose comes from the gospel. We find our purpose in the gospel. We find our hope in the gospel. And we think about these folks who are struggling for an answer in our world Apart from all the, the variables that would take us away from that, there are, there are answers to be found in Scripture. God has purpose-built humanity for his service, for his glory, and designated us to be the hands and feet. Now, the word has relatively simple instructions then for all of Christianity that will yield fruit for his kingdom in a cultural mandate. And this is yet another concept that, that was introduced to me from, from Kuiper. Um, is, is the term cultural mandate familiar here? Anybody heard it before, once, twice, maybe? Okay. The reason I ask that, I just want to be careful that if I'm using a term that's unfamiliar, that I define it as much as possible, though that can be sometimes boring. So, um, There are terms that float around creation mandate and cultural mandate that can be used in various contexts with, with subtly different meanings. It's important to clearly define what definition you're using in a discussion, but... Hang with me because I think it's important. Creation mandate refers to the idea that God's original intent for creation gave mankind supreme authority along with specific responsibilities, uh, privileges, uh, rights to freely use all of us animals, plants, and resources for the benefit of humankind. Creation mandate is expressed most directly in Genesis 128. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Roll over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And the Hebrew term for rule over implies an absolute sovereignty of man over the rest of the earth. And 
this impacts so much of our, our modern, even political discussion. If we think about the green movement and, and what it is that we should believe and how it is that we should act when we think about um, air pollution and, and green things and uh, on and on and on. There is a very serious implication given to us as Christians that we had better be good stewards. I don't know if we take that as seriously as we ought to. I have a, I have a habit of making making fun of people that I shouldn't maybe, you know, tree huggers and so forth. And and and, and yet the reality is we we should be setting the example. We should already be there, in industry, in private life, in agriculture. We should already be there. We as Christians should be taking stewardship of these resources very seriously. And we don't need to be alarmist. We don't. We t- uh, exchanging with Nathan earlier this week and some other folks, uh, you know, about uh, some of these, some of these uh, world events that we've seen over the past couple of years, you know, pandemics and, and wars in Ukraine and Russia and, and fires with smoke covering all over the place, all these things. And they, they can seem somewhat apop- apocalyptic. And any time... Anytime I see something like that happening, I am not called to prophesy the end of all time. I am called to examine my own life. I think, I think the term that I used was, I, I need to examine where I am complicit or complacent in sin, in the perpetuation of sin in this world. That comes from this creation mandate. That comes out of this. This whole idea, um, and, and by the way, I, I think there's so many of these social arguments that have their root, their answers in Genesis. Um, you know, meat eating. Where did that come from? Noah got off the ark. God said, eat meat. There it is. We can talk about the context. We can talk about the why. We can talk about all those things. I, I get it. I understand. But let's go to the scriptures and have those conversations around the scriptures, not about my opinion, not about my scientific deduction. And I think that's, that's important. Again, much opinion infused there. I won't apologize for that. The creation mandate also implies responsibilities to which mankind is bound. As the God-appointed ruler, mankind is prohibited from abusing or wasting those aspects of earthy controls. Since creation ultimately belongs to God, emphasize that. That car, that house, whatever it is, it is God's. You give up nothing to give that item up. And it's, it's important to remember that. I think much of the anxiety, especially as you get to a certain point in life, you reach a certain age, you're, you're whatever, you've acquired something. It is, and I think in studies have proven this is, this is the greatest fear, but I'll say it's just one of the greatest fears of men, adult men, is that they would have to reduce the standard of living for their families. That's the thing that keeps them up at night. That's the thing that makes us anxious. That's the thing that makes us fearful. And when we make our decisions predicated on fear and anxiety rather than trust, absolute trust in a sovereign, almighty, omnipotent God, we're in a scary place. And we're just like the world. So in short, the creation mandate says that a man is sovereign over the rest of the earth. Man is obligated to responsibly use what God has placed under his control. Man is expected to reproduce according to God's intended design. Oh, that's in there too. (laughs) That, that, that's one that's hard to escape, right? Man, woman, united together for a purpose. Oh, the accumulation of things. 
right? I mean, isn't that what we do when we're thinking about getting married? Okay, all right, all right. So how are you going to take care of the financial needs? Okay, you've got to get a house first. You've got to have a good car, good, reliable car. You've got to have a good job. You've got to have all these things before you can be faithful to what God's commanded. Now, I, I, I don't, I'm not advocating carelessness, foolishness. And your parents are your best guide if you're a young person. Your parents are your best guide to know whether you're acting foolishly in that context. But I am saying God's given us an instruction. It's simple yet massive, right? Go climb that mountain. It happens to be Everest. Well, it's a simple statement. It's a simple command. Be fruitful and multiply. But you have to have another person to do that. You have to live life, be united together, become one flesh with another person. That's hard. That's really hard. But this idea of the creation mandate continues on with the idea of a cultural mandate. So I'm drawing a distinction here. We left all the creation mandate, and we're going to talk about a broader cultural mandate. Cultural mandate is a more flexible term. It applies to a, a wider range of topics. Three primary versions of, of this idea. The first is some people will use it just like the creation mandate. Uh, that's kind of shortening it or truncating it. The second, the second view of that connects God's command in Genesis 128 with the Great Commission. And I'm, I'm a fan of connecting those together. And the third places the Great Commission within the creation mandate, requiring political and social matters to be forcibly brought under Christian control. Hence another controversy. I would say that I am absolutely an advocate of joining together the Great Commission with creation mandate because it's God's instruction. It really is. And as we think about what it means to require political and social matters to be forcibly brought under Christian control, that's the debate today. Here we are, back at the same place. Kuiper had a lot to say about these things. The first definition of the phrase cultural mandate is mostly used in reference to sexuality and marriage. Um, there's, there's this emphasis on God's ordained plan for procreation and male-female relationships. The second is pairing creation with the Great Commission. Um, they are inextricably united. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, make disciples of all the nations. Think of how those things pair together. They're naturally paired together. And it implies something when you pair them together. It implies that the Great Commission actually applies in your, in your home, my home. So, so my call as a father is to make disciples of the nation in my house, right, and all the nations. It, it starts here and it extends there. Obviously, that third use is the most controversial for good reason. Under, under an extreme approach, the Great Commission is seen as a further explanation of the creation mandate. And in other words, man has an obligation to apply Christian concepts formally and forcibly through government and law, among other means. In this approach, government is required to mandate adherence to Christian ideals on civil, social, and personal levels. Um, I'm not going to go deep into that because it would take a whole other hour, and we need to wrap up here. But I would say this. Um, please don't think that God would not have you to run for political office. Because if you don't, who will? Please support the people who do run for political office. It's much easier to main, remain true to your faith when you're here surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. When you get out on the front lines in politics, it is so hard. 
It is so hard to retain your core values. It is so hard to live in the way that you know you ought to. So surround those people with love and care at all levels. Bathe them in prayer. Consider what they face on a daily basis. Everything from temptation to bribes to compromise on your ideals. It's difficult. The third approach is not easily harmonized with Scripture, and that's why I say I want to be careful about it. One reason God warned Israel about taking on a king is that human government is always, by definition, subject to human flaws. Even in the New Testament, Christians are called on to consider their obedience to God as something separate from and higher than their loyalty to earthly rulers. While making uh, scriptural laws into civil laws sounds fine in theory, we find that human beings who have had to enforce those rules are not so infallible. Attempting to force people to adhere to Christian ideas when they have no personal relationship with Christ is absolutely futile. It defeats everything the Reformers would stand for. Worse, it leads to abuse and excesses that are blamed on the Bible rather than on fallible people. So history makes the reality of this abundantly clear. I'll summarize with this. Let's remember God's command. For us, let us be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Spread out, take dominion, make disciples of every nation, begin in your own home. And so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And that's the message I think Abraham Kuyper would have me to share with you. Thank you.